If you would again take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. We're getting close to the end. We're making our way through uh, this entire book. And we're also uh, getting closer and closer to the end of the narrative of Joseph. So today we're going to be looking at the entirety of, of chapter 45. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come. So that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father to income. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provisions for his father on the journey. 
Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their, to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, Father, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. We pray that as we move through this text, we may understand it and apply it to our lives. Uh, that your gospel would be clear to us, and that the name of Jesus is glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we again return to our study in Genesis, and we return again to the narrative of Joseph, we come to what really is the climax of the story. Now, In our study, actually throughout uh, Genesis, we have learned that the main characters are not the various people. The main character is not all the various people. Uh, here it has not really been Joseph. It's not been Jacob or Judah. The main character in the book of Genesis, and really the whole Bible itself, is God. God is the main character. It is God who is ruling and overruling through his hand of providence, accomplishing all that he willed to bring forth. Through the covenant, though the covenant family has been in shambles and the situation was looking rather grim, God was on his throne. And he was bringing them forth as a nation, a nation from whom Christ would come. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 47 that the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And that God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Though men intend to do evil, God uses even the wickedness of men to bring about his purposes. Now, you may recall that the brothers of Joseph had many years prior intended evil against him, but God in his providence had overruled such that Joseph was elevated from, to the second in command in all of Egypt and was perfectly placed to bring about the temporal salvation of his family and to accomplish the will of the Lord. Now the type, Joseph, was like Christ, who was the stone rejected by the builders who became the chief cornerstone. Now, Joseph, of course, does not bring a salvation like Christ's, and yet he is a shadow of what was to come, the one who was sinned against, who then turns and saves his people. God used Joseph not only to spare the life of his family, but to spare the life of the nation. Israel as a nation, was to be moved to Egypt. 
They were to be moved away from the wickedness of the Canaanites and to be separated, separated even from the Egyptians, so they may flourish as a nation. And finally, Joseph is positioned to bring reconciliation to his family. The covenant family, as we have seen, was broken. It was in shambles. There was infighting. There was rivalries. They were sinning against one another. The family was a mess. But that was all changing as God was using Joseph to bring healing. And so last time we saw that Joseph had given his brothers three tests. He had had tested their loyalty. He had tested their responsibility. And he had tested whether they would put others before themselves. Whether they would be willing to substitute themselves or, or live sacrificially. Benjamin was to be taken as a slave. Because he had, been, he had taken Joseph's silver cup, or it had been alleged that he had taken it, and he hadn't actually done it. Uh, he was set up. And Judah, at the end of, of chapter 44, you might remember, or you can look at it, uh, you might remember that Ju- Judah made a, a, an, an impassioned plea for Benjamin's life. He asked that he would be taken in Benjamin's place. Because if anything were to happen to Benjamin... Their father was as good as dead. Jacob would be crushed with grief. And so Judah was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his brother and for the sake of their father. Now this is quite a turnaround for Judah. And so we pick up where we left off in the narrative. Uh, After uh, Judah's penitent plea, And we see then that this was too much for Joseph. He was brought to tears and he began to weep uncontrollably. Joseph's formerly selfish and cold-hearted brothers had now had a new motivation. They they were now motivated with love for one another. They had confessed their sin. They had confessed their desire to rescue Benjamin and to spare their father grief. Now, Joseph had previously been able to govern his emotions, but now it was, he simply could not anymore. In the ancient world, a, a controlled spirit was much prized. But here was Egypt's wisest man giving expression to authentic passion. There's something to having a cool head in difficult situations. But there are times for appropriate expressions of emotion. And there's no shame in appropriate tears. There are times that we should openly weep. This was one of those times for Joseph. And so he made everyone leave the room so that he could reveal himself to his brothers. No outsider from the family could remain in this intimate moment of reconciliation. He was to speak to his brothers alone. It was time to bring the season of trial to an end. And the weeping of wailing of Joseph, which was, must have been very loud because it was heard outside of the room. It was heard by the Egyptians. It was even heard by the whole household of Pharaoh. This was a deep, intense expression of decades of pent-up emotion. Joseph's emotional outburst 
though, began to manifest his true identity, you, you must wonder what his brothers thought. Like, what is this official of Pharaoh doing, weeping before us? What is happening right now? Finally, Joseph spoke, and he reveals his true identity. Look at verse 3. He says to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. And then he inquires as to whether his father was still alive. Now, of course, he knew the answer to that question because in Judah's pleading, he had expressed concern for the life of his father. And so in a sense, what he's asking is, is it really true? My father really is still alive. Now, his brothers heard this. The text tells us, the ESV translates it, it says that they were dismayed. Now, there are some translations which say that they were dumbfounded. The brothers were dumbfounded, and there was there is something to this. They, they're very confused. Perhaps they are, you know, a little afraid. What, what is happening right now? What, what what are these words he's saying? They were understandably shocked by Joseph's statement. I'm Joseph. What? The brother which they had wickedly sold as a slave and that they assumed was now dead was quite alive and is the Lord in Egypt. Their surprise undoubtedly also then turned into fear as as the words are ringing in their ears and they begin to understand what is said. they, They really do become afraid. Understandably so. This would be shocking to hear. There's a whole host of emotions which must have been running through them at that moment. And here is finally the climax of the Joseph narrative. After all of these years, after all of the hardships, after all of the sufferings, now is the moment that he had been waiting for and that God had planned for him. And so he says to them, come, come near to me, please. And they came near and he says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt. As Joseph's words are still ringing in their ears, they are now confronted with the truth. If they were only dumbfounded before, they were surprised, confused, perhaps. Now they really were distressed. When Joseph invited them to come close, and he said, I am your brother whom you sold in Egypt, you should note that Joseph is not rebuking them. He's not saying, you know, yeah, I'm Joseph, and you sold me into slavery. You you shouldn't have done that. He's actually not saying what he's saying. He's saying that to prove his identity. He realizes they're not sure. Wait, Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt, now it's all beginning to click. He's proving to them, I didn't just hear a story about your brother. I am your brother. The brother that they had earlier said was no more was actually standing before them. Joseph knew what they did not know, but now the truth was being revealed to them. Now they knew also. And so the initial shock made way to fear and guilt and shame. Their long-held secret was now in the open. 
This corporate sin, this, this sin that these brothers had shared, this secret which, you know, couldn't get out among, from that group. Only we can know this sin of ours. We have to keep this close together. Now it's out. Now it's been revealed. And no longer must they suppress their guilt. Judah, recall, you may recall, had taken the first steps in reconciliation when he approached Joseph in chapter 44. He had admitted their sin and their guilt. He took responsibility for their sin. Judah has changed his ways from selling his brother out to offering himself in the place of his brother. And now Joseph would facilitate the resolution to this long-standing break in the covenant family. And so he first sought to bring them some measure of comfort. Joseph directs their gaze away from their sin towards God's grace and mercy. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Don't don't, don't worry. Don't be mad because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. This was part of God's plan. The brothers had indeed sinned against Joseph. This is clear. But it was by God's providence. And it served the means because this was the means by which God was going to save them. Their lives would be preserved because God had sent Joseph to Egypt before them. And so in an ultimate sense, this is what had happened. God had caused Joseph to end up in Egypt. It caused Joseph to end up in the position that he was in as a leader and as a lord in Egypt so that the people of God might live and not die. So they might be protected from falling in with the Canaanites and being consumed by that nation through marriage and through their lifestyle. God was protecting his people As one commentator puts it, God directs the maze of human guilt to achieve his good and set purposes. Just as Jesus was delivered up to die on the cross by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God for the salvation of souls, Acts 2 reminds us, so was Joseph placed in Egypt so that the lives of God's covenant people might be preserved. God was ruling and overruling by his hand of providence. Joseph is a type and a shadow of Christ demonstrating something of the kingdom of God. He suffered so that he might be exalted and bring life and salvation. Joseph was able to save his family temporally. Christ saves us to the uttermost. Joseph was sent by God to save Lives, generally the Egyptians, but more specifically to save the covenant people and the nation of Israel. The famine had already been in the land for two years, and there were still five more years to go. And in that time frame, everyone would starve if God had not sent Joseph before them. Verse 7, God had sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth, and keep alive for you many survivors. Ultimately, it was not his brothers who had sent him. It was God. 
God had sent Joseph to Egypt to accomplish his purposes. Now, this doesn't take away from the fact that the brothers had sinned against him. But there's a bigger picture here. The brothers' guilt and responsibility is not absolved, but rather it explains the greater purposes of God's hand of providence. Joseph said he was made a father to Pharaoh. That is to say that Joseph, too, had a special advisor role with the king. So it's not only that he went before them and, you know, sort of had a place, but he was put into a place position. He had the ear of the king. And he was a person who was held in high regard. There was no one else in Egypt of higher rank than Joseph other than Pharaoh. Though his brothers were guilty concerning their sin, God in his sovereignty had used it for their good. And now they come repentant. And there's forgiveness. And there can be reconciliation too. And so Joseph instructs his brothers to go back to their father, to bring his message to Jacob, urging him to come, to come to Egypt without delay. The the Hebrew word uh, mehar, which means hurry or quickly, forms the literary bookends of this section. The brothers of Joseph were to go, hurry, hurry, go go get our father. Go without delay, bring him here. And they were to urge their father not to delay. He was to come and live in the land. Israel will be given a particular portion to live in. They will live in Goshen. They will have their flocks and raise their children in this place. God has caused this to be made possible because Joseph had been made Lord of Egypt. And so Joseph will be able to care for his family and this nation And the the location of Goshen is not actually known to us, but may have been a place in the eastern delta of the Nile River. One commentator suggests that Goshen had not been formally assigned by Pharaoh shows Joseph's advanced planning and expectations. There's a sense in which perhaps Joseph is the one who picked out the place and, and Pharaoh made it so. The famine was to last five more years, and during that time, grazing would be impossible. And so Joseph will in the future provide the land. In the meantime, it was imperative that Jacob and the rest of the the covenant family travel as quickly as possible so they could be cared for through these five years of famine. And so incredible is this news that they have to deliver, that Joseph was going to need a credible witness. This witness would be Benjamin. Benjamin! Maybe the only brother whose character was above reproach, at least in the eyes of Jacob. Jacob may not believe his other sons, nor understand that they had been changed men, but Benjamin, he would believe. Benjamin then would testify to the truthfulness of the words Joseph spoke. Benjamin could testify that Joseph had said these things with his own mouth, and it was not an interpreter who had said it. Joseph had spoken to them directly. Joseph's ability to speak his native Hebrew proved that he was the son of Israel. And then we see that Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on him as well. And so you have this embrace. 
these brothers crying together. He kissed, kissed his, all of his brothers. He wept on all of them. And then again, he spoke to them. The wickedness of his brothers and the actions they had taken against him had been overruled by the mercy and grace of God. And as he reflects on God's goodness, as Joseph reflects on God's goodness, he embraces his brothers with love for them. Word had then reached the house of Pharaoh that Joseph's brothers had come and the king was pleased. His servants were pleased. Literally, it, was, it says it was good in his eyes. Pharaoh was glad for the family of his most important advisor to have come. Joseph was highly favored in the house of Pharaoh. They, they, were, they had great gratitude for him because it was because of Pharaoh that Egypt was saved. Joseph had secured the land for Pharaoh and for his people. And so in gratitude, Pharaoh offered the best of the land to Joseph and to his family. And he said this, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, go back to the land of Canaan, take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. The covenant people were to be cared for. And Pharaoh spoke, who was speaking through Joseph as an interpreter, but he would take care of them. The family was to come back, was to bring everyone, and they were to settle in the best of the land of Egypt. And Joseph was ordered, furthermore, by Pharaoh to bring, to provide wagons for the family. So that the, the family could use these wagons to bring the, the whole family to Egypt. Wives, their children. And again, mention was made of bringing your father. And bring your father here. And they were to be no, not concerned of their goods. They were not to worry about what they were going to bring with them. Pharaoh says, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. He was, to, he was, to, he was going to bless them greatly. So what is in view here is, is not food, that was already being provided for, but rather household goods. They wouldn't need to even bring their furnishings and their household items with them. All that Egypt had to offer was to be given to them. The king was showing them great kindness. He was providing them convenient transport with the carts, the food, the variety of goods. Essentially, he was going to make their transition into Egypt, very smooth. Just come and we will take care of you. And also in doing all this, the idea is of a permanent settlement. Israel will be moving to Egypt and will remain in that land for a number of generations. In fact, in many respects, the stage here is being set for what is to come in the book of Exodus. And so the sons of Israel did as they were instru instructed. Again, the phrase sons of Israel is used, which indicates Israel as a nation. The nation is in view. God is not only protecting this family, but the, the nation which is coming forth from them is in view. The nation which will grow and flourish during their time in Egypt. And Joseph was to provide the transportation, the wagons and the provisions for their journey. 
And he gave to each of his brothers a change of clothes. But then notice again, he blesses Benjamin above and beyond. He gives Benjamin five changes of clothes. Just as he had given five times the portion of food before. And he gave also to Benjamin 300 shekels of silver. And for his father, he sent 10 male donkeys loaded with goods and 10 female donkeys loaded with food items for the journey. And again, the picture, the picture is of lavish blessing, an abundance of food, an abundance of goods being gifted to the covenant family. This is an overflow of blessing. Ten male and ten female donkeys bring to mind the ten brothers' original journey seeking food. Now, after the surprising ordeal of a great trial, they they are going back with way more than they ever expected. They're coming back with an abundance. And finally, as they're sent away by Joseph, he gives them one last command. He says, do not quarrel on the way. The King James puts it, see that ye fall not out by the way. Now, the Hebrew word used for quarrel is ragaz, which has the essential meaning of quaking, trembling, or stirring up. Like how the ground trembles in an earthquake. That's, that's the essential meaning of the word. Now, now, most of the translators and commentators indicate that Joseph is telling his brothers essentially not to fight on their way home. And the word in this sense is, is seen in, in Proverbs chapter 29.9. Uh, if, if this is correct, then what it, he is saying is that they should not make recriminations against one another as they head back to Canaan. In other words, don't fight over whose fault it is. Because they're going to have to explain to their father how it is that Joseph ends up being alive. You know, how do we go home and explain this to dad? Oh yeah, the brother we said that got torn up by animals? Yeah, about that. He's actually alive and a lord in Egypt. Now that's one possibility. It's possible that they're being told, don't fight over this. Don't fight about how you're going to explain this to dad. Instead, what they need to do is live in peace and forgive one another. In other words, the quaking, right? Don't, don't trumble against one another. That's one possible idea. Another possible interpretation is that what is in view is in quaking is not trembling in anger, but trembling in fear. Trembling in fear. This is the way the word is used in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 14. And if this is the case, then what Joseph is telling his brothers is don't be fearful as they travel to Canaan and back to Egypt because it may be in the back of their mind that they had a fear of Joseph. What if he's doing all this, sending us back, and then we come back with our whole family and then he slaughters us all? Takes his vengeance on them. Now, it's, it's, not, it's not clear precisely what Joseph has in mind in these instructions when he says, do not tremble on the way. But certainly they had no, they had no reason to fear. And the likelihood that they would fight on the way back to Canaan over explaining to their father how Joseph came to be sold in Egypt and whose fault it was is pretty high based on their past character. It's pretty likely that as they go back, they're like, well, how do we explain this? Well, is this, you know, is this kind of your fault? Just, you know, <laughs> it's definitely not my fault. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this was your idea. No, no, no. You, you know, they think back, you know, two decades before. Whose fault was this? 
But these are changed men, too. God is changing their hearts. And for his part, Joseph doesn't lay blame on his brothers for his tribulations. Instead, he invites them to focus on the good that has come and the good that will come through God's providence. The brothers were to bear with one another in love, to forgive one another, since Joseph had forgiven them. And again, we see a shadow of Christ, don't we? Who has forgiven us our sins. Therefore, we are to forgive one another and bear with one another. The brothers were to return, they were to fetch their father, and then again return to Egypt without delay. And so, they went out from Egypt and they returned again to the land of Canaan and they go to their father Jacob. The, the, the geographic references, you know, going out and coming in, prefigure the migration of the Exodus generation, which would happen uh, many, many generations into the future. Again, this is setting the stage for what's to happen in Exodus, which is really just a continuation of the story. And as they come to their father, they're told, they told him in verse 26, Joseph is still alive and he is the ruler over the land of Egypt. Now the narrator blanks their confession of Joseph, to Jacob, rather. He doesn't, they don't say, like, well, here's how they explain it. They, they don't, uh, they, we're not told that. This may perhaps suggest that they followed the counsel of not condemning one another. Seems that the brothers are able to speak the truth freely, and thus free, free of their guilt and shame, they rejoice in their brother's exaltation as a ruler of Egypt. Jo- Joseph is alive, and he's a ruler. The news that Joseph was still alive, though, was too much for Jacob. How could this be? The text says that his heart became numb. Jacob was stunned. He was not able to respond. He was dumbfounded. He was gobsmacked. Or some might render it, he was speechless. You probably have that experience, haven't you? Received surprising news, and all you could do is stare at them. What do I say? I'm not even sure what you just said. Jacob has received news which was hard to believe. In fact, at first, he doesn't believe them. That Joseph was yet still alive was hard enough to comprehend, but he's also a ruler in Egypt? This was too much for the old man. How far-fetched and ludicrous this is. What are my children telling me? Seeing how stunned their father was, the sons then all begin to... Tell him the words which Joseph had spoken to them, how they were to be provided for, that they would be saved from the famine, that they would live in Egypt, that land was to be given to them, they were going to be blessed and cared for. Jacob begins to look around him. He observes the wagons and the donkeys filled with food and all the best that Egypt has to offer. And he sees the wagons which had been sent to carry him and all of the wives, and all of the children. And he looks at all these things. And so as the words of his sons and the scene around him begin to sink in, we read Jacob's spirit was revived. The elder patriarch, all gray and bent, 
began to take on new strength. His soul was revitalized within him. My son Joseph is alive. So Jacob, here rendered again as Israel, verse 28, which again indicates his place as the head of the nation, he speaks. It is enough. Which is to say, speak no more, I'm convinced. The message had sunk in. He understands. Jacob's old heart had now taken on a youthful vigor. There's a spring in his step. And he exclaims, My son Joseph is alive, and I will see, go and see him before I die. What joy must have been found in that expression? Not only in Jacob, but even for his brothers, the sons would not, wouldn't be able to, to migrate to Egypt without the consent of their father. And now he gives them their permission. The family would go to Egypt. But God had graciously granted Jacob the chance to see his son Joseph even one more time before he dies. The son that he had once wept for the son that he was convinced was dead, having been torn apart by wild animals. That son was alive. Jacob, who had at one time fought with Laban over possessions that were his due in his younger years, now yearned for his son instead. The things that awaited him in Egypt were of little concern to him. My son is there. Joseph is there. And I will go see him. What a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? Of a father who loves his son. Who was hopeless in thinking he would ever see him again. That he gets to see him again. Beloved congregation, it is certain that all of us have experienced broken relationships, loss, difficulties to some greater or lesser degree. All of us have experienced that. All of us have been at odds with someone, someone we love. The Joseph account serves as a beautiful picture of reconciliation. A reunion. The son that Jacob had lost, that he thought was dead, was alive. And the broken family, this family had been racked with sin, was being put back, back together and restored. And the nation which seemed to be in a, in a grim situation on the, on the verge of destruction, was going to be enabled to grow and flourish in peace and safety because of God's hand upon them. You and I in our lives may face a variety of heartbreaking situations. We may find ourselves at odds with people, even with other Christians. You might think reconciliation is impossible. 
How could this ever be put back together? It's like Pandora's box. How do you put it back? Beloved congregation, our Savior is greater than our problems and our rifts. And we should believe that to be true. Our hope is not found in this world. When the situation is impossible to resolve, we should know that nothing is impossible with God, that there is always hope. For even while we were yet still sinners, God Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What more broken relationship is there than the one between a holy God and a rebellious, sinful human? If God could repair the breach through Christ, how much more can, can he in this life among men? And does that mean he will? Does that mean that every, every breach in your relationships is going to be magically fixed? No, not necessarily. But he is able, and you can pray to that end. And you can pray with hope. Beloved, we are a people of hope. We, can, we trust God can do with people as he pleases. He can heal the brokenhearted. He can restore the ruptured relationship. And so rejoice in hope, beloved congregation. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Pray for those whose relationships are broken, seemingly beyond repair. And beloved, I, I know that some of you I don't know necessarily all of the situations, but I know that there are some. I know there's broken relationships. I know that many of you struggle in these areas. Pray for one another. All of us need one another praying in this way. Pray for restoration. Pray that the lost might know the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for your own heart in these matters. Pray that your heart might be open to forgive past wrongs and to be reconciled with those who have wronged you. Pray that your heart might be changed, that as you've wronged others, that you might repent and go and be restored with that one. Pray. Pray that you might be restored in relationships which are damaged and be hopeful in this. Trust in Christ. And know that in this life, it's never too late. Jacob thought his son was dead. And he was alive. And he was going to join him. His other sons had sinned. And their hearts had been changed. And that family has been restored and renewed. God repaired their relationships. God can repair yours as well. Take encouragement, rest, trust in God and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the ways in which you restore and renew, that you repair. Father, you know the great difficulties that each of us have in our lives, the the brokenness which exists. In some cases, it's our own hearts are, are, are not right before you and before other people. Help us to see 
our own errors, repent. Help us also to forgive those who've wronged us. Father, if there are relationships which need mending, we pray, Father, that you would do so. That you would be pleased to restore people together, particularly fellow believers. That we may go together in unity, enjoying our union with God in Christ. Help us to be hopeful, trusting in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.